0: Welcome to a special episode of Beyond Barriers podcast titled Forgotten Afghanistan. In this episode, we interviewed the founder of the Afghan Liberty Project, Ryan Morrow. He tirelessly works to rescue those who were left behind in Afghanistan. When Afghanistan fell to the Taliban in August of 2021, there was an estimated 81,000 special immigrant visa or SIV applicants left behind. This figure does not consider American allies left in Afghanistan, who qualify to be SIV holders but, due to bureaucratic or other similar barriers, are unable to apply and or gain approval for SIVs. August 26, 2021, 13 U.S. servicemen and women were killed in an attack outside the Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul, Afghanistan. Beyond Barriers dedicates this episode to those 13 fallen U.S. soldiers. We would also like to dedicate this episode to all of our men and women serving in our military at home and abroad and all of those who have fallen to protect our freedoms. May we never take for granted our freedoms and the service men and women who serve to protect those freedoms. Thank you for joining us, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Now, for our listeners that don't know, what is the Afghan Liberty Project?
1: Well, I have a background in counter-extremism and national security, and that, that's been uh, my career for the past, I'd say, almost 20 years. Um, but I took a, a little bit of a different turn recently, and I created the Afghan Liberty Project in order to help people that are in Afghanistan who are U.S. allies and were abandoned or other people who are abandoned and deserve our support, like the persecuted Christians, women's rights activists. Um, but we have a special focus, particularly on those who risk their lives serving side by side with American forces, only to be abandoned and basically handed over to the Taliban and ISIS. So,
2: Ryan, with the work that you're doing, and, and first of all, I want to say how incredibly important it is and, and what an honorable uh uh, trajectory to, to work with these folks that uh, that are stuck over there, what has been one of the most challenging situations in the work that you're doing and helping to get people out of there? What is What has been one of the biggest obstacles or hurdles?
1: Uh, the biggest obstacle by far is fundraising, um, especially because of the crisis in Ukraine. Those that are inclined to give to those types of humanitarian causes, um, understandably, have their focus on Ukraine. So Afghanistan's been basically completely forgotten. Everyone I talk to who's involved in the cause uh, says the same thing. And Afghanistan's a little bit different than the Ukraine. I I don't really know how you can, you can't draw an equivalency because they're quite different. But Afghanistan in one particular way is different uh, because the people can't escape. Uh, In Ukraine, you have a refugee crisis, but people are leaving Ukraine or going to parts of Ukraine Uh, that have not fallen to the Russians and they're getting international aid. Whereas those who are being hunted by the Taliban and ISIS-K and soon al-Qaeda in Afghanistan uh, really have nowhere to go. They have to stay with relatives or friends and hope that they don't get tracked down. And many of them are getting tracked down. And so the big problem of fundraising uh, comes in because you have to pay for evacuations. You have to pay for food to be delivered because someone's scared to go outside. Uh, pay for rent and things like that. And the easily the the most painful part is when we run out of funding and having to tell that to an Afghan who's dependent upon it. Uh, They're so appreciative for every little bit you give, uh, but that doesn't make it any easier when you have to actually say to them, I'm sorry, but I can't provide the food for your kids for this month or maybe ever again. And that's easily the worst part of all this.
0: You brought up a really good point as a lot of people – I think have it in their minds that we give funds, you guys get the people out and it ends there. But as you know, it doesn't end there because once you have have been able to, if you've been able to get these individuals either back stateside where they're supposed to be or they're refugee refugees and you're able to get them to a safe space, they still they're not employed. They aren't able to provide still for their family. Can you walk our listeners a little bit through, like, what that looks like. And you mentioned it there, like, as far as continuing support. Can you explain to them, this? it doesn't end once the initial prog- process has started?
1: Right, that's a, that's a good point. So, on the one hand, you have people that are in Afghanistan and desperately need to get out, and they're being hunted. But they also have family members and friends there. The territory is familiar to them and familiarity is very important if you're trying to survive. Um, So on the one hand, it seems like an easy uh, yes to anyone who can be evacuated to just anywhere. But you have to think about how difficult it is when you're brought somewhere where you don't know anyone, you probably don't speak the language, you don't know how to get a job. And so for some Afghans that have evacuation opportunities, the lack of support after being taken out of the country leads them to stay in Afghanistan because at least they know where to hide. At least they have a friend to talk to. There's something. Um, But if you're going to just drop someone off in some country and and say, all right, well, now make it on your own, uh, for many of them, they'd rather take their chances with having the Taliban or ISIS-K hunting them because, hey, they haven't succeeded in finding me yet. So that's kind of the attitude. Uh, So you have to, when you do these evacuations, you have to think about, well, what's the next step? And so you have to either provide additional support so someone can resettle and hope that they get a job and can support themselves as quickly as possible, or you have to connect them with other humanitarian aid organizations that are set up for resettlement type operations.
2: So as far as like, um, and I think this is good for the listeners to know as well, like you were mentioning how refugees are leaving the Ukraine, as far as Afghanistan goes, are the Taliban and, and the government there specifically, are they shutting down the borders? Or is there not the ability to, to cross for a lot of these people to get out to another country? Is, is that part of the, the process or, or what's going on with that? Do you know?
1: Yeah, there, there still are opportunities to leave illegally. Uh, that's really what the taliban is trying to crack down on is the the illegal crossings Uh, they will interfere with people trying to get passports you show up to an office if you're a wanted person it's possible that you're going to get arrested it's also possible you won't Um, really any time you interact with a government body it it poses a risk so i I would say it's not that they're shutting borders altogether. they're focusing on the illegal crossings mainly uh, but then those are trying to leave legally There's all sorts of different ways that you can be caught in the process uh, by the Taliban or or just caught up in an ISIS bombing if you're in a certain area where they're setting off lots of bombs. I've got to tell you, ISIS is really growing quickly. Uh, It's kind of the big underreported story here, where when you talk to people, they say, "Yeah, I I understand Afghanistan is hell, but I because it's hell, I don't want to be involved in it anymore." I've got news for you: Uh, the U.S. is going to be back in there uh, because ISIS is growing so quickly, uh, and that's because You have all this expertise available. Uh, And if you have to feed your kids, you're going to make some really awful decisions in order to feed your kids. Um, And so you have all this expertise and weapons there. And as ISIS grows in Afghanistan, from from the point of view of their constituency, they're fulfilling end times prophecy because they'll cite this prophecy saying that an army with black flags is going to rise from the area of Khorasan, which is partially Iran, but mostly Afghanistan. So ISIS can speak with some credibility when they talk to people with that type of mindset and say, look, you know that prophecy that you've heard about your whole life? We have the black flags. We're rising in Khorasan in Afghanistan. And so you could see lightning quick recruitment on the part of ISIS as soon as it becomes apparent that they're seizing territory. They haven't actually seized territory yet in Afghanistan, but when they do... we're going to go right back to where we were before, where you had this whole wave of radicalization in the United States because ISIS declared a caliphate. It might even be worse this time because actually another part of the prophecies is that they'll start losing, that they'll actually rise up in the Middle East and then start losing, and then they have a comeback. So they can even point to their losses as a fulfillment of prophecy and saying, look, just like the prophecy said, we're coming back and we're coming from Afghanistan.
2: Wow. And you mentioned Al al Qaeda as well. So is that is that uh, your intelligence sources or or is that popping back up on the radar, too, now that they're reorganizing
1: there and and coming back? Sure. And when you say Al Qaeda, there's Al Qaeda linked groups as well, because Al Qaeda means the base. And so they're kind of a collection of all these different groups. So basically every single Pakistan backed jihadist group is going to be looking to activate and, and grow in Afghanistan. Uh, It's going to be somewhat of a contest, I think, between a bunch of them. But al-Qaeda specifically, yes, it's a consensus that al-Qaeda is there, they're growing. And what often seems to be forgotten is that al-Qaeda swears allegiance to the Taliban. Uh, Al-Qaeda is basically a subset of the Taliban. We talk about them as if they're two entities, and so maybe you can turn one against the other. No, they actually are, from their point of view, one single entity. And so you're not going to be able to break them apart. You can't trust the Taliban to hold to any deal that involves cracking down on al-Qaeda. And the most you might be able to get is the Taliban to agree to try to contain al-Qaeda to some degree. And they would do that just out of sheer pragmatism because they want to stay in power and they want to get grounded into Afghanistan a little bit more so they can withstand whatever type of retaliation the world reaps upon them once Al-Qaeda is unleashed. So there, there might be some level of restraint on the part of Al-Qaeda right now because things are going their way uh, and they don't want to act too aggressively and risk losing their gains. Uh, but th- that's not such a good scenario for us because that means w- eventually they're they're going to say, OK, we're strong enough now. Let's go back to the way things were before. And you're going to have Al-Qaeda mixed in with ISIS, mixed in with countless other groups. There's over 20 terrorist groups that operate in Afghanistan
2: what about um, like the women's rights issues? Um, I know the Taliban was making all these promises that women could go to school and things like that. And at first, you know, supposedly that was happening. Um, but you're you're more knowledgeable on this subject, uh, for sure. So what what is the status of that? I mean, are, are the women's rights being slowly whittled away like a lot of people predicted? Or, or is that uh, what's going on with that?
1: Yes, uh, definitely, they've already been rolled back. The Taliban is, in some areas, following this doctrine of gradualism that the Muslim Brotherhood follows, uh, where they just move incrementally as opposed to the ISIS style, just immediate, full-on, theocratic Sharia law uh, because they don't want to face an uprising. The Taliban still faces some resistance from the National Resistance Front and various other resistance groups that have risen up to fight the Taliban. Similar to how after 9-11, we allied with these different groups that were fighting the Taliban, those same types of groups are still around, and so they're continuing the fight. Uh, And so the Taliban has a major concern where they, they have to follow a doctrine of gradualism, which means gradually getting the local population accustomed to your theocratic Sharia law. Uh, Because if they push too much, there's going to be a backlash. So in some areas, the rolling back of women's rights is more severe than in others, depending on the temperature of the local population. And what I would add to that is, yes, there are rolling back women's rights. And it's tempting to say, well, isn't that the natural disposition of Afghanistan? Isn't there always been backwards is what I hear. So why do I care? This is just how things are. And it really isn't that way. I mean, you've had 20 years of the Taliban out of power. You've had a lot of modernization that have gone on, uh, a lot of education that's happened. Uh, and so this isn't like a situation where women's rights are abused and people grow up expecting it. They have, they're accustomed to it a little bit because that's all they know. That's not what it's like. Uh, this is just like, really like in America, If you have where you have women enjoying freedom, except now you have it just suddenly taken away suddenly you can't go to school Uh, suddenly you're being harassed in the street suddenly you might be taken as a child bride or if you're a single adult woman taken and forced into a marriage all of these horrors are suddenly now uh, that are foreign to this younger generation are suddenly now brought upon them and that makes it just so much more
0: painful absolutely now I was looking on the website, and it also mentioned, I just wanted to mention this real quick, too, because um, the Afghan Liberty Project is actually under uh, the Doubting Thomas Research Foundation. Is that correct?
1: Yep, that's correct. Um,
0: It's an arm of that. And then real quick, and I'm not going to spend much time on it, I just wanted to let people know what the Doubting Thomas Research Foundation was in addition to it, because I think both of these are very, very good Uh, things to have um, especially the Afghan Liberty Project because like you said people it's been it seems like almost forever since it happened and it hasn't been it's been very small minute time since it happened and you know attention needs to be brought to it because we cannot forget because that's how history repeats itself is when we do forget and when we don't you know, see these things. But can, just for a quick second, can you let people know what the Doubting Thomas Research Foundation also is?
1: Sure, so that's kind of the umbrella organization for now. We're setting up a new nonprofit for the Afghan Liberty Project and similar humanitarian efforts. Uh, But for now, it's a wing of the Doubting Thomas Research Foundation, which is completely uh, different in terms of its focus. It focuses on uh, researching biblical history, and the degree to which you can reconcile it with history, archaeology, and science, and those type of modern understandings. So we've done a lot of work in the Middle East uh, doing archaeological-type research uh, related to the story of Moses and the Exodus. And where it kind of does dovetail a bit with the topics of extremism and humanitarian crisis is that it's very good for interfaith unity uh, because there is so much that's shared between Judaism and Christianity and Islam uh, that when you're doing things like Gathering evidence that the story of Moses and the Exodus is historically accurate, it does kind of bring together the three faiths in a way that it didn't before, even in places like Saudi Arabia, which is our primary focus.
0: Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. I will have links for the Afghan Liberty Project and everything in our bio after the podcast and I will also include in there the donate link for the Afghan Liberty Project so people would be able to find you and, you know, learn more about your efforts and everything. Thank Um, you. you, You're very welcome. And thank you for everything that you and your organization are doing to try and tackle this problem. And it's, as you know, it's not going to be tackled overnight, but anything that we can do to try and help, you know, humanity is really big. Now for you personally have how has this journey affected your personal life as far as trying to do this great thing of getting people out have you had backlash from general public I guess you could say you know as far as you know trying to keep bringing attention to this what kind of backlash have you received and Personally, how has that helped motivate you to keep doing what you're doing?
1: I would say the, the two forms of backlash that I get is first this type of nativism that says, uh, well, you shouldn't help any foreigners. You should only help Americans, you know, America first um, to, to a, a totally extreme degree, not the typical when people typically say America first. They don't mean it to this extreme. Uh, but many people do take it to this extreme uh, where they say you just should, shouldn't help a foreigner at all. Um, And I just disagree. Uh, There are certainly people to help in the United States, certainly. Um, But they're not being hunted by the Taliban and ISIS and and living on the street and hiding in cemeteries and wells. Uh, And if you have an opportunity to help people that are hiding from Taliban and ISIS, I think you have a moral obligation to do so. You also have a moral obligation to help out your neighbor in the United States or Canada or wherever um, and just do the most you can. Uh, I just don't think that we should have a singular focus and just try to figure out where God has placed you, uh, where you've been placed to best help other people. Uh, The other form of backlash is a little bit more reasonable where people say, well, how do you know that you're not helping secret extremists? Which is an argument you can deploy again when in any situation where you're teaming up with people overseas. Uh, But we do collect the documentation on everybody. Uh, There is an, an extensive vetting process that we put them through. And just for their types of communications with us, they could be killed. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to be a secret jihadist and then do something like say, oh, I converted to Christianity and here's a picture of a cross and here's the pictures of the churches I went to uh, because that's just gonna end up getting them killed. Um, So there is a strong vetting process that is stronger than what the US government does uh, in in my opinion, from everything I can tell. Uh, So we're not as concerned about that. how has it affected me personally? Uh, on the one hand, it's it certainly definitely made me more empathetic. Um, it's affected me emotionally. It's very hard to sleep at night, um, partially because of the time difference. So I'm getting phone calls and texts all night. Uh, but also, it's very difficult to stop those thoughts of these people that you get to know. Um, and knowing that, okay, I might want to have a big dinner tonight, but they have nothing. Um, and so every single time you spend a dollar or even spend a second of your time, it's always in my mind thinking, well, is this really the best way to be spending my time or my money? Um, But I I also recommend to anybody who suffers from any type of anxiety or depression or or anything like that, getting involved in humanitarian work is probably better than any medication out there on the market. Um, And I wasn't going through anything particularly severe or or where I need sympathy or anything, but I was going through some difficult times when this started. Um, And I've got to tell you, all those difficult times, I forgot about it. Once I got involved in here, it's just a total change in my mindset, and so it's very—it uh, it alleviates a lot of whatever pain you're going through. Whatever you're going through, your life is going to be better if you spend some of your time helping other people.
2: That's that's a great a great outlook, Ryan, and and I think I, and I echo your statements. <clears throat> I think it's very helpful for people to be doing good things for others, and because it it makes you feel it makes you feel good knowing that you're helping someone else and you're doing a good thing. And, and that's, uh, humanity could really learn from that. I wanted to ask you, and, and I have a, a, a quick story to share with you as well about another persecuted community there in Afghanistan, the Hazara people. Um, you know, they've, they've really, uh, and I want to ask a, a bit about that, but I want to preface this with a story. From uh, in 2019, I was in Turkey and I spoke at a de-radicalization conference over there. And I met a member of the Hazara community he had said he was in the process of going to school to be an attorney. And I said, well, you know, how, what, what made you want to be an attorney? How did this come about? And he says, well, I was in the armed forces in Afghanistan and, uh, I was slapped by a commanding officer. And, uh, he says, and that's what, uh, you know, pushed me to, to, you know, want to become an attorney for my people. And I said, well, explain this to me. Why, why did you get slapped? What, what, what's going on? And he says, the gu- the uh, commanding officer slapped him because he was a Hazara and that the Hazaras were disrespected. They were looked down upon. And he said that there's a statement basically that's that said there that about the different factions in Afghanistan that, um, you know, we'll fight these people, we'll get these people out, but the Hazara, they'll go into, into the ground. It was It was, I'm not quoting him exactly, but it was something like, it was something of that nature that basically the Hazaras, we can't have peace with them. We can't separate from them. They need to go in the ground. And um, to me, this was, was, you know, just mind blowing because I, I thought I knew stuff about Afghanistan at the time, but I didn't know about the Hazara minority and how persecuted they were. And and some of the stories I'd heard from him. So I was going to ask you uh, specifically, uh, I'll, I'll never forget this, uh, forget hearing some of some of the stories from him. And I and I know that they're they're targeted there. So um, are you doing any work with the Hazara community? Are they some of the specific people that are facing this persecution?
1: Oh, for sure. There's a lot of Hazaras who served with U.S. forces. There's a lot of them that have converted to Christianity. Uh, and the punishment for that is death. Uh, But in the eyes of ISIS and and Al Qaeda um, and actually the Taliban, Hazara just being Shiite, it's a majority Shiite population, is enough to warrant their death. If you add on top of that, they converted to Christianity or served the previous Afghan government or served U.S. forces in any type of way or Western businesses, anything like that, uh, then that doubly makes them qualified to be executed in the streets. So they have to worry a lot about a genocide. Uh, And the only reason it's not happening now is because the Taliban is still finding their footing. ISIS is trying to blow up as many Hazara as they can. There's a special focus on that. And part of that, I think, uh, just based on what ISIS does in other countries, I think the strategy there is they're trying to foment a backlash among the Hazara that brings in Iran. Uh, Because it seems like what ISIS always tries to do is they find that sectarian fissure within a certain country, and they try to pit the populations against each other. Because in that environment, the extremist forces end up taking command. They're the ones that are most ready and willing to use violence. Uh, So they're hoping that the Iranian government comes in in order to protect the Hazara Shiites, even though the Hazara Shiites are much more liberal. They're not not like the Iranian regime. The other incentive for the Iranian regime to get involved uh, on behalf of the Hazara is to suppress the Hazara uh, because they don't want there being a liberal Shiite alternative to the Iranian government. So on the one hand, the Iranian government is likely to intervene in Afghanistan to protect the Hazara because they're majority Shiite, but also to oppress them at the same time. They want to be the ones to oppress them, not ISIS.
2: That sounds like a lose-lose situation. And um, lose-lose, yeah. just for some, for some background on Hazara, and, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but weren't they the ones, uh, were they the same people that, that put up the, the Bamyan, uh the statues that were blown up by the, by the Taliban years ago, the big Buddha statues, or was that another group of, of people there?
1: I honestly don't know. I, I just assumed it was Buddhists and left it at that. okay
2: (laughs) i thought i was going to learn something here on that one i'm going to have to oh no you're
1: not you're not going to learn anything from me trust (laughs) me
2: (laughs) now we gotta look that one up afterwards but uh, thank you Uh, i i just remember that uh, um i think i was a kid when that or child when that happened when they blew up those those big uh um monuments and that was really uh horrifying and it's just it's just an ongoing crisis there in afghanistan Uh, acacia go ahead
0: I was just going to ask like what what if somebody wants to get involved but they can't financially are there other ways that they can get involved and help
1: Sure well just to put a price on it so people understand 20 bucks could save a life uh especially when the next harsh winter comes around like they were expecting over a million kids to die in Afghanistan's deadly winter the, during the last time around. We don't know how many actually did die. There was international aid that came in, but there's no accounting. I've seen pictures of dead kids uh, over there, but there's, there's no way to quantify how many actually did pass away. Um, and so just getting winter clothing can be enough to save a life in Afghanistan. So uh, don't look at a $20 or a $10 donation and think, oh, it's not going to make a difference. Like, no, that that's probably going to save a life. It really is. Um, But if people can't donate even that amount, uh, let's put it this way. I'm not in Afghanistan and look at everything that we're doing. It's all just done through our phone. It's just through determination. Um, We're not even specialists on Afghanistan. It's just seeing what people need and how to get it to them. And we always need more hands for that, Uh, more hands to handle the lines of communication and help with fundraising help with social media promotion anything that gets our cause out in in front of people so that they see it is a huge help because maybe someone didn't donate twenty dollars but now they got it got a promotional ad in front of people that then donate twenty dollars or forty dollars. it's really a numbers game uh the more people that see and hear about this cause and they know about the afghan liberty project and and the low price point with which they can save a life the more people that are going to donate so the solution to that isn't always just having each person donate it's having each person spread awareness of the project to other people that they know
0: exactly yeah and you you hit on a really good part there as far as you know getting the word out and you may not be able to but you know you can get the word out and somebody else can and you never know who's watching who's looking and who will see that that can help so that's very good
1: good point yeah. yeah it's a big help because th- think about it, big companies pay a lot of money for social media promotion right and it's the same way in the nonprofit world especially if you have something that's a really specific ask like this uh so don't don't uh, underestimate the power of a tweet or a facebook post
0: and speaking of a tweet and a facebook post um i'm just going to cover this really quick now i saw you posted something by the irap um Biden administration moves to get out of its court-ordered obligations, promptly access Afghan and Iraqi SIV applications. Oh, that story. Yeah. Do you yes, want to that I'm not, I'm that not at a at all, lawyer,
1: or? so I can't kind of give both sides to that. But basically, right. uh, there is resistance in court to get it, giving these special immigrant visas to people who deserve them in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Iraq's been dealing with this, a similar problem as Afghanistan for a long time where people who served with U.S. forces and deserve an SIV, a Special Immigrant Visa, have to fight so long to get them, and sometimes will even run up against resistance, and then they have to go to court, uh, whereas it should be much easier for people who you trust to come to America if they put their lives on the line for American interests. If it was a question of vetting, I would totally understand it, but it's not, it's not really a question of vetting where they say, oh, we need time to go through your social media find out what type of preachers you listen to or, or anything like that. There's no broad ideological uh vetting that's going on at all. So we know it's not that. It's just right. bureaucracy, really. That that's what it comes down to. Bureaucracy is the reason that Afghans and, and Iraqis who serve US forces and want to come pursue the American dream are unable to. Hmm.
2: See, and that and that to me is 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 horrendous because in both of those cases or any of those cases where the United States is engaged in these in these wars, those people, their lives are literally at, at risk, you know, beyond at risk. I mean, their, their lives are on the line because they put their lives on the line for the U S and now, you know, they're go- having to jump through all these hurdles. And, and I, I just, I don't understand it. I, I think that, um, you know, our government's not perfect. That's for sure. And, and, uh, we've got open borders in, in different areas and, and things like that. But these people deserve that citizenship. You know, they put their lives on, literally on the line for this country and there should not be those kind of roadblocks in the way. I think it's horrendous.
1: Yeah, there and there's over 100,000 uh, SIVs reportedly still in Afghanistan. If you're going to ditch a country in the middle of a war and you're going to ditch your allies, at least evacuate them. Uh, how we didn't do that. I'm sorry, how many did you say? Oh, 100,000. Unbelievable. And that doesn't include the persecuted Christians, the women's rights activists, people who not everybody qualifies for an SIV who have done things like fight for progressive causes or indirectly helped US forces. Uh, So that number is really low when you consider how many people deserve and need to get out. If you're going to leave, at least evacuate the people who are going to get slaughtered, as many of them as you can, or better yet, Come up with some type of safe zone. That, that's what I've been arguing for. There needs to be some type of safe zone in Afghanistan, maybe in the Panjshir area where they're really resisting the Taliban, so that people can flee to some area of Afghanistan that's insecure and relatively free.
2: Yeah, that's a great idea. Actually, that I had I hadn't heard that before, and I, I think that's, that's 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 doable. I mean, that's that's it not. That, I don't feel like that's that's a bridge too far. I feel like that's something that that could be easily done.
1: Yes, it's, it wouldn't be that hard to implement, especially when you already have people fighting the Taliban. So we're not talking about an invasion or anything like that. It would just be helping the people who are fighting the Taliban complete your common objectives. Because realistically, we know that we're going to end up back in Afghanistan. I see no scenario long term where we don't. Uh, either we're going to go in in order to preempt the terrorist threat or we're going to be forced to go in after lots and lots of Americans die on American soil. And you're going to want to have a a strong ally in Afghanistan, you're going to want to have a starting point. You're going to want to have an initial safe zone with which to strike them back from.
0: Yeah. And really, really, if you think about it, how is helping them have a safe zone, even if we don't, you know, not putting boots on the ground, any different than Ukraine? Any different than sending billions of dollars to Ukraine? Like... It's like you said, it is. We're not invading Afghanistan, we're not putting boots on the ground, we're just helping them have a safe zone for these people to go to. So,
1: yeah, yeah, use the Ukraine model. I mean, imagine just a tiny portion of what went to Ukraine if that went to Afghanistan, how different it would be because the Taliban are a bunch of clowns, they aren't like this elite fighting force, they're not the Russians. As soon as they have one loss, they're just going to start crumbling, uh, because it's all about momentum. And as soon as the opposition to the Taliban has the momentum and they have one clear victory, you're going to see people swarming to join them and you're going to have people defecting from the Taliban very rapidly. Uh, so I don't view this as that difficult of a situation to address, which makes it all the all the more frustrating.
0: Can't even imagine.
1: I would just say just emphasize that the Afghan people are the majority of them really are pro-American. Uh, when you talk to um, especially among those that we want to evacuate. Um, they, are, they love America despite of even what we've done. I mean, I'd be very bitter if I was in their position, but so far none of them have said anything anti-American to me. They're disappointed, but to them, America is so great that even America can do something like drop them and abandon them to the Taliban. But at its core, they still understand that America is a wonderful country that stands for certain ideals, ideals that they have. Um, and they understand that America is flawed, and they just see this as an inevitable flaw in an amazing country. Um, so they really inspire me. Um, but what also inspires me is are the daily miracles on the ground. There are things that happen that you're like, how did that happen to save that life? Like, for example, uh, there were two families that we were aware of in our safe houses. Now, keep in mind, we've had probably 15, 20,000 emails at this point from different Afghans asking for help. So only a tiny bit go into our safe houses and receive care from us. And of that very tiny amount, there is a situation where there were two families that were basically uh, telling us about how his family members were blown up. And we started noticing that their stories were really familiar. And it took us some months to realize this, but the one was saying, yeah, my sister, I believe she was killed. I haven't seen her for six years. And then the other one was saying, I believe that these members of my family were killed. I haven't seen them for six years. And then we realized, no, they're, they're actually both alive and we reunited them. And you're like, how does that happen? What are the odds of that? And there's just stories like that constantly. And I think anyone who gets involved in these types of humanitarian causes are going to have crazy stories like that where you say, I just, the odds of that are just so stunning that you've got to, you, you have to call it a miracle. It defies chance. Right.
2: That's, that's awesome. Yeah. So the things like that, I think that's the kind of stories that I think like the news media should be focusing on and and focus on things like that because it gives people hope. It gives people, it's, it's inspiring and it, it, and it, uh, I think it encourages people to get involved, you know, and that's, that's really, um, you know, that's what this episode is all about. It's Memorial day. We want to encourage people to get out there and get active and involved in something. And this is a wonderful cause. It's something where anyone can help, like Ryan said, twenty dollars can save a life. I mean, that's uh, that's incredible. And and if you don't have that, you can promote the 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 cause on uh in, on the internet through Facebook, Twitter, etc. What your social media? There's so much. Anybody can do something, and and you should. You really should.
1: Thank you. The, the other uh, element since Memorial Day that I would mention is that most of the people that we're helping are friends uh, to the point of almost being family with veterans, people who serve in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So there'll be people who serve in Afghanistan asking us to help out someone that they served with that they consider to be like a brother in in arms. Uh, And we're certainly happy to do it. So this is a way of helping the vets. And the other, one thing that I really didn't expect that really did bother me when this started, I I just failed to appreciate the severity of the PTSD that a a lot of veterans um, have suffered from from serving in Afghanistan, but then seeing what they fought for go away or feeling like what they fought for went away, hearing about their Afghan friends that are being killed or living homeless on the streets. Uh, And so hearing those stories is really painful. That's that's one of those things that um, at least I know I didn't quite anticipate the power of.
0: Absolutely.
1: Now, what about, uh, Ryan, what about
2: like the American soldiers that died during the uh, kind of botched pullout there? Do you have any thoughts uh, Thoughts on that? Or, or are you in touch with any of the families or, or anything that-
1: uh, Not, of, not and, of those 13, but I mean, obviously they're heroes. Uh, every single time someone goes into a situation like that, some patriot goes in there, they, they know that they might have to pay the ultimate price. Uh, and it's amazing how they're able to, do that with a, with a smile on their face because they believe so strongly that they're protecting America and protecting other people who embrace the ideals of America because uh, the U.S. is so much more than just a piece of territory and a successful, powerful country. There's, there's something that unites us and bonds us with others that take up the same ideals overseas and team up with us in order to promote them. Uh, it's about being the shining city upon a hill. Um, and so having people out there Willing to defend you is something that we all really need to appreciate and think about more and think creatively about how to help. If they're your neighbor, how can you help them? Can you babysit their kids or something so that they can go out and have a nice night? Just there's all sorts of little things that you can do that are so meaningful. It's not always just about donating or saying thank you for your service or anything like that. Um, There there are lots of substantive things that you can do uh, to show your appreciation. I think that's more important than just saying something or donating.
0: Absolutely. Every little thing counts, every little bit counts. And it's one thing that I always say is you don't know what the person, you know, you see down the street, you walk past through at the grocery store is going through. So even the smallest act of kindness can save a life. And like you said, you know, with our veterans, you know, I, my brother is a veteran. My nephew is in the air force and my actually oldest son wants to go into the army. And, uh, you know, all I can remember a lot of times is like, you know, with all the civil unrest going on right now in the United States and the back and forth. And even though with a lot of the polarity going on and everything, we are still a united people in many, many ways. And that's, you know, Jeff mentioned it too. And you mentioned it about hope and clinging on to hope and seeing these people bounce back and being able to be reunited through your efforts and not even realizing it gives hope. And that's, you know, hope is a small thing, yet a very big thing. So Mm. I, I appreciate your efforts and the efforts of, you know, your community and your organization to continue this. And, um, Thank you for giving people hope.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me on and giving me an opportunity to tell people about the other side of Afghanistan besides just all the doom and gloom. uh, We also have, there are things that are encouraging still happening there. And there are plenty of opportunities for everyone to make a difference. And when you do that, uh, you're not just doing the right thing, but you're also helping to protect the United States.